Welcome to Murder on Silk Road, the podcast that explores Asian and European true crime cases. I'm Julia, and with me is my friend and co-host, Lina. I'm Lina, and each episode we will be sharing either an Asian or a European case. Between these episodes, we will bring you a shorter in-between episode, where whoever did a case that week will prepare a random topic to discuss. Before we get started, a general warning. The themes discussed in these stories may be disturbing and triggering for some, so listener discretion is advised. So guys, today I have for you a European case, and so you may have heard of it because it was pretty big in the news, you may not have heard of it. But today I'm telling you the story of Daphne Caruana Galizia. So... Daphne was born on August 26 of 1964 in Sliema, Malta. Malta, if you don't know, it's one of the EU's smallest member states, and it's an island between, like, Italy, Sicily, and the North African coast. So, Daphne was the oldest of four daughters born to her parents, Rose and Michael Vela, or Vela, um... She married the lawyer Peter Caruana Galizia in 1985, and she had three sons with him. In order of age, their names are Matthew, Andrew, and Paul. So throughout the 80s, she was very involved in activism. She was arrested in 1982 when she was 18 for taking part in protests against the government. And her journalism career started after the 1987 Maltese general election where the labor government was replaced. So in the 90s, she helped establish the Malta Independent and she worked as a columnist for both the Independent as well as the Sunday Times of Malta. She was known as being meticulous and hardworking by her co-workers. Until her death, she wrote weekly columns for daily and Sunday editions of the Independent. She then also became a publisher and editor of coffee table magazines, the most popular of which, Taste and Flair, it's called, is still being published today by the Daphne Caruana Galizia Foundation. So you would say that she's kind of like a very well-known um, journalist. Definitely. So for sort of before the point that I'm going to be getting to, um, soon. She was definitely very well known in Malta, at least. I don't really know uh, what it was like in sort of nearby countries, but she was definitely a very well known figure, it seems, in Malta. But she definitely became more internationally known a bit later on. Uh, I mean, this was all before the internet, right? So it was. When you say writing in newspapers or magazines, it's all very local. Yeah, so this, I mean, like I said, she started um, writing these columns in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of right as in the internet was starting to become a thing. Yeah. And I don't have the exact timeline, but so one of her most important contributions is her blog, which is called Running Commentary. Uh, Daphne started this spontaneously in 2008 as Malta was heading into general elections. So obviously this blog was on the internet. Yeah. And I guess that was kind of the switch over Mm -hmm. maybe to 
um, online news, but can't can't be too sure. But that was definitely on the internet. Okay. And her readers and her adversaries flocked to her blog, and despite there having been various attempts to take it down, the blog remains active to this day. So if you're interested, you can still actually look up what kind of stories she wrote. Ooh, can you send us the link later on? Yes, definitely. I will also mention all my sources at the end. Definitely. Okay. So kind of what made her maybe more internationally known um, was that she was involved in the release of the Panama Papers in 2016. And this kind of marked the peak of Daphne's influence. So I don't know. Do you guys know anything about the Panama Papers? Mm, I feel like I should know about it, but I don't. (laughs) (laughs) The name rings a bell, but yeah. I remember a little bit. Okay. Only a little bit. Okay, so the Panama Papers were a leak of 11.5 million files from the database of the Panama-based Mossack Fonseca, the world's fourth biggest offshore law firm. The company's services include incorporating companies in offshore jurisdictions and wealth management. And these leaked records showed how many of the world's rich and powerful exploit secretive offshore tax regimes. This involves... So basically helping rich people not pay taxes. Tax evasion. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What was the company, the law firm called again? Mossack Fonseca. Mossack Fonseca. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's kind of what it reads like for me. Okay. So these leaked records showed how many of the world's rich and powerful exploit secretive offshore tax regimes, like you were saying, tax evasions. Involved in these um, were roughly 143 politicians, as well as some of their families and close associates. And of these almost 150 politicians, 12 involved were national leaders. So the records themselves so you, were very. Sorry. Yes. You know, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. So you said 150 politicians and Roughly. 12 were national leaders. Yes. So these these will be like leaders from all over the world. Yes. This wasn't and just do you one know, country. This like any leaders or like that we might know, like president of this country or that country. Um, I don't have that information for you right now. I know that. Let's in- come back to this. But I'll Google it okay, now. Okay, sure. What I do know just off the top of my head is that there were a lot of... I guess I'm going to um, get to that in a second. So I'll just keep going and then you'll get a bit of an answer from me. So the data, so the, all these files were obtained from an anonymous source by the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung. So translated, that's South German newspaper. And then it was shared with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ for short, which then shared it with further international news agencies. So involved in reporting these exploits all over the globe were around 400 people, of which Daphne was among them. She was the first to break the news of Maltese politicians' involvements. So that's, I guess, a bit of an answer for you. So the information was 
from involvement from a bunch of different people all over the globe, but they kind of separated the information to different countries like news agencies and to different countries' reporters so that they could break the news of their country's dealings. Yeah, so the report about their politicians. Okay, just like hmm. shortly Wikipedia it and it's pretty much like there's uh heads like prime ministers mm-hmm. of like Czech Republic and Georgia, Haiti, Hong Kong, Jordan, Lebanon, Mongolia. Oh yeah, Mozambique, I definitely I actually United remember Kingdoms. the um Mongolian politicians because I read something about how even in Mongolia um politicians stepped down but not in Malta mm. because even Maltese officials were involved. Yeah, so it it really was global. And so Daphne became well known because she broke the news of mm. politicians in Malta that were involved. So whoever has a lot of money. Whoever has a lot of power as well, because I think that's why, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of focusing on the sort of politic side of um, the Panama Papers in this, because I think a lot of people kind of focus on that because these are people that are in charge of a lot of people, like uh, decisions involving a lot of people. And if they are setting these rules, these laws, and then they're completely going against them, Mm. that makes you lose trust in government. I mean, there's probably not a lot of trust in a lot of governments right now anyway, but it just kind of proved a lot of suspicions people had about these hypocritical actions taken by people in power okay. i guess right so i think we can kind of understand that there these leaks showed a lot of wrongdoing um at the hands of a lot of people in power and at the hands of people with a lot of money and all these journalists kind of started leaking these informations reporting on a lot of this corruption and causing a lot of outrage and outcry among citizens. So obviously these these journalists weren't then very well received by all these powerful people. A lot of them actually faced threats and attacks and especially in the case of Daphne, even before her part in the Panama Papers, she had faced threats and attacks before. So these kind of included phone calls, letters, text messages. uh, And by the time of her death, there had actually been a total of 47 libel suits against her. Her dog's throat had been slit. And their family home had been targeted by an arsonist. Do they know who did that? I don't... I couldn't find anything about that beyond that mention in an article that that had happened but Mm. no other details i also feel like just knowing that she's targeting like the government Mm -hmm. are the like police on her side or like are the police also like corrupted no oh definitely the latter (laughs) which will sort of become maybe apparent in 
the continuing story that I'm gonna share with you. Great. It But feels obviously, like you're there's up for a lot of tragedy. Yes, <laughs> but I think we know from just stories and maybe media as well at this point that a, a lot of the time law enforcement is in the pockets of the people in power. So if one party is unhappy with you, the likelihood is that mm. the other like, party won't no be either. There's no one you can go to for help. Meaning you're shit out of luck, I suppose. Yeah. Yes. All right, so I'm sort of, yeah, I'm now going to tell you sort of about the case at present here, but I think you can kind of sort of tell already where this might be hitting. Obviously, I just presented you a lot of data that kind of gives at least sort of motives for people being unhappy with her and maybe wanting mm. her to stop um, putting information out there. So there, there is already a setup for mm. a lot of people being very unhappy with the work that she's doing, obviously. So on Monday, October 16th in 2017 in Bidnia, Malta, Daphne was working at home with her son, Matthew, so her oldest son. Mm -hmm. They used their dining table as desks. They had both had lots of work, so they didn't even stop for lunch. So Daphne got ready to leave the home because she had a bank appointment at 3 p.m. Mm -hmm. While her son, Matthew, stayed at the house. She left the house in order to get to the bank for her appointment. And a few minutes later... Matthew heard an explosion. So there had been a bomb What? installed on her car. And Shit. the blast killed her instantly and the vehicle scattered in pieces across fields. Oh, her remains fuck. were found as much as 80 meters 80 away from the road. And she was discovered by her oh son. God. Her son? Yeah, because she really hadn't gotten very far from the yeah. home before the explosion was heard and he rushed to the scene and oh. so he was one of the first there Jesus which is horrible i cannot imagine was it her car that exploded or just a random car parked on her street no it was her car she was driving in it And it exploded with her in okay, it. So she already drove off. Yes. Right. She wasn't far, okay. but she was on a country road between mm. their house in Bidnia and wherever the bank was where she was going. Imagine the trauma that her son went through just by like being there and seeing the yeah. scene. It's horrible to think about. Yeah, and I mean, when you first hear the explosion, you don't know what's happening and you always still have some hope that nothing happened or it's unrelated or, you know... She Maybe she's hurt, but mm -hmm. to then find that the worst thing happened. And to be there and to see it, like, visually. I can't imagine. Big, That's so I don't so think hard. I can mm -hmm. either. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit off topic, but I just watched the Netflix show about the Boston Marathon bombings. Um, the last few days and there were also the video images of you know the bombs going off and then people being hurt 
and yeah it's just so shocking and awful and mm-hmm. you know your if your family's there you you know you see them getting carried i mean these people they i think there were three victims at the explosions at the bombings if i'm not mistaken um but but yeah if if it's your you know your family and they go through this it's just it was so awful i mean yeah it's it has an effect on you even when it's not mm. people you know because it's horrible but it there's just an extra mm. hit to you when it's people you know and people you love i mean it just destroys you completely mm. Yeah. I'm going to say, like, I, was, I still remember going to the 9-11 memorial and how, like, just being yeah. there feels traumatic. Just going through the memorial feels extremely traumatic and, like, yeah. yes, I can't even imagine. So, continuing on, the investigation into the death of Daphne was a mess from the very beginning. It was taken very seriously by the international and uh, European Union community, but it seemed to not be taken very seriously by the Maltese government. So Daphne's family called multiple times for a change in the people involved in the investigation due to possible conflicts of interest. Um, Since, like I said, Daphne was... uh, journalist she and like she had also had like these libel suits against her she had obviously reported a lot on also people involved in law enforcement and the government so now these people being part of her investigation yeah is obviously problematic but there's did they end up changing yes the people no so uh, one example whoops so one example of these uh, of the family calling for a change was one month after her assassination, they filed a lawsuit against the Maltese chief of police because the investigation was overseen by a senior officer who was married to a top government minister. And since the murder was very likely a targeted killing on Daphne, uh, since her work focused on government officials in the same cabinet, this was obviously problematic. So worry about this sort of conflict of interest might not have been unfounded since through information from the Panama Papers, Daphne had been able to make connections from multiple offshore accounts to uh, Maltese Prime Minister Joseph Muscat's energy minister and his own wife so the prime minister called these claims obviously falsified claiming that there was no evidence to this fact and filed a libel suit against daphne sorry can we, can so, we just clarify uh yes the people sorry the law firm was was it also called Mus- muscat something <laughs> or am i just mixing things up Mosaka. Mosaka. okay and then oh, no m- m- wait let me just check. Mosak Fonseca is what it was. Mosak, not Muscat. Yes. Muscat, okay. like the, German... Do you know what the language in Malta is like? So I think it's 
a mixture. I think they actually they speak a lot of English because I think that they used to be a colony of the British. Um, but let me check very quickly. Nope, I don't want the currency. I'm sorry. We'll have to cut this out. Yeah, no worries. Hey, Lena, so I'm just kidding. Obviously, there's a lot of noise on my... I'm trying to mute my mic as much as I can, but... So... Okay, so... Their official languages are Maltese and English. So, apparently, Maltese is a Semitic language derived from late medieval Sicilian Arabic with Romance substrata. Sounds really interesting. Okay, so so the president... Prime minister. Prime minister is called Muscat. Like you yes. said earlier in German, it's nutmeg, right? Yeah, like like the German Muscatnos nutmeg. Yes. yes. <laughs> if that makes it easier for you to remember. It does. Prime minister nutmeg. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so she had been able to make these connections to his energy minister and his own wife. Mm. So basically the Panama Papers revealed how they were involved in offshore um, accounts and tax evasions. The prime minister, I mean, if it's his wife, then it's him as well. And then his energy minister. Well, let's just say... Allegedly, because... Allegedly. Yes. <laughs> but I have a very strong belief that Daphne was wouldn't have reported on something if there wasn't a lot of evidence okay. towards it. Makes sense. The investigation into Daphne's death took off about two months after her death. So through phone intercepts, including one which was likely the trigger of the car bomb the police was able to arrest 10 suspects. So three of these, their names were George and Alfred DiGiorgio, they were brothers, and Vince Muscat, were later charged with the murder, although all three pleaded not guilty. So you might have noticed... I, I so, can't, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so let me, I can't help but notice yes. there's another Muscat mixed in there. Yes, so let me just clarify. They, there's no connection between them. They share a name, but they're not related. And he is another nutmeg. Yes, he is another nutmeg. <laughs> so wait, there, there was... Who are the other two people? So they're... The brothers' names are George, George and, Alfred and Alfred de Giorgio. Okay, so can we just call him Alfred? George, let's say George, Alfred, and Vince. Okay, that's easy to yes. remember, yeah. So George and Alfred are the brothers, and then Vince is the third <laughs> that were later charged, yes, um, as having been more directly involved than the other seven suspects because they weren't later really mentioned again okay almost two weeks after police arrested these 10 suspects homicide investigator keith arnaud said forensic testing had determined that the bomb was an organic explosive that was detonated using a circuit board fitted with a sim card and was triggered by a mobile phone message it's just so fascinating how they 
how it all works that you can send an SMS message and then that just triggers a bomb. It's just can't wrap my head around it. But it sounds yeah, yeah. like something out of a movie. Like mm. you've literally seen that in movies, but it's crazy. This is real. This actually happened mm. and this killed someone. Investigators had collected and examined around 25 hours of CCTV footage from every home and building in the vicinity of Daphne's family home. Since, as a journalist, Daphne had no clear set routine, the police had strong suspicions that the perpetrators had been watching her very closely in the time leading up to the crime. Going with this likely... so creepy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, knowing... I mean, knowing now that... You know, they murdered her, and then they were watching her this whole time as well. It makes, yeah, it's very creepy. Going with this very likely scenario of having been watched, investigators had identified several possible vantage points from which the house could have been clearly observed in the time following the crime. Neighbors had also reported seeing a small white car parked nearby, and detectives had recovered forensic evidence from the scene, including, in quotes, fresh-looking cigarette butts. Okay. Lol. Lol. <laughs> That's where I have to come in. Yes, come I have Come, come join us in this conversation, chain smoker Angela. But well, that's kind of like yeah. typically typical stalking behavior. It's also, also typical hitman no, behavior, no. I think. No, I really. Whenever you see I don't know this. a bunch of sig buds outside anywhere, it's like someone's been someone's been there here for a, for while. a long time. Yeah, a very long time. Or you're just I mean, a chain smoker, like me. or or that. Yeah, I was gonna say, as a smoker in our group, how many? You know, how long would you have to stay to to produce that many? I mean, four buds. Four cigs? I think I've produced that much more than that throughout this whole okay. podcast. I, I can't um I can't confirm this a hundred percent, but I remember reading in one of the articles that one of the brothers, I can't remember if it was Alfred or George, but one of them later testified that um they were staking out the house um and that he had bought like that he smoked like was it three packs a day that they were there like what they were seriously it's i i I think i remember it being three packs but it was a shit ton of cigarettes and i can imagine that that was like nervousness how do you smoke three packs a day i mean they were sitting there like all to leave well they weren't professional hitmen (laughs) like okay (laughs) to be fair they're not professional hitmans. Yeah. That's very true. But I, I can very imagine fair. if you're sitting there like for who knows how many hours a day, if not like all day, every day for however long a period of time. And all you can do is like watch this house and smoke like you're going to go through a lot of cigarettes. But also that's why people should buy like a cigarette case. It's how you do it in, you know, and just not throw cigarettes everywhere yes don't do that because then Just that. but do you know that, like wasn't that was was it a cigarette butt that got um joseph d'angelo the gold state killer caught or because it was some sort um, of like 
DNA. <coughs> I don't know if it was a cigarette butt I or like tissue just, or something. They just gr- took his trash out and tested Maybe. it out. But, but what, I, uh, what I meant no, to say with that... Wasn't he very careful, though? I can't remember, but... He was, but I mean, they somehow got his um, DNA mm. to m- check it. But um, if if perpetrators leave behind uh, cigarette butts as evidence they should go for it. Like, they should leave that so that the police can solve yeah. crimes. Yes. Don't help the true. don't help the leave criminal elements, evidence. Angela. Leave so <laughs> your DNA at the crime scene. So yes, please. Yes, please. Please leave more. Yes. Leave it all out there, please. Don't, don't Forget be... I, uh, I said, like, that was just for, like, healthy, good human beings yeah. that just smoke. Don't, don't yeah. live by Gen's rules from Lena's case. Leave evidence <laughs> behind. Yes. But honestly, why would you ever f- leave your cigarette butts on the floor when you're, like, spying on someone? Can't you just... Which is a good thing. I know it's a good thing because that's, like, a lead. But that's also just so stupid. Well, I can imagine that maybe they didn't think that they would get connected because it was such a convoluted crime in a way, the way it was set up. Mm. And I mean, even um, since the it was triggered by SIM, like technically whoever sent that trigger message wouldn't have needed to be there. Maybe they thought, oh, it's not going to be connected. Yeah, I, mean, I can see how you would think that because, you know, you're not the only person who smokes around town and people leave their cigarette butt- butts all over the place, I think. Um, so it could be anyone's. And if, because it's, you know, a bomb, like you said, anyone could have triggered it. So it's not like people see them entering her house or, you know, stabbing or shooting her, but it's something so remotely done that... I can see how they would feel safe just littering all over the place. I just feel like as, you know, if it wasn't like a crime, then I would kind of like understand Mm. it. But just because it's more of like, I'm committing a crime. And, you know, I would be more careful. The way I see it is that the police, they... They couldn't know that that is the place that they observed the house from. But seeing these theories that they made, they discovered this place that perfectly overlooked the Daphne's family home. And they happened to find these cigarette butts. And they might be a complete dud. They might have nothing to do with it. But in the case that it does have something to do with it, they collect the evidence. And later, if they have suspects, in this case, like George, Alfred, and Vincent, and the DNA actually matches up with one of them, then that's obviously evidence. But it might as well not be involved I at all. I swear to God. Do we know how they... Sorry. Sorry. It's just really random. But honestly, like, whenever... um. I see, especially when I'm living in apartment buildings, whenever I cross and I see there's a bunch of like cigarette butts, I feel like, I don't know if it's because I read too much or like we listen to too much like of these cases, but I always feel like that someone, it just means that that person has been 
in that location for a really long time. And they're either spying mm. or they're in a really like troublesome phone call. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> mainly your paranoia from all listening to all that true crime. I would hope at least. Yeah. yeah, let us know if you find the same cigarette butts all the time in front of your house. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to ask, do we know uh, how the police narrowed down the suspects? Like, how did they come up with um, George, Alfred, and Vince? So I, I'm going to kind of mention that now, actually. Okay. All right. So... Analysis of mobile phone activity in the area of on the day of Daphne's death led police to focus on one particular SIM card that had, in quotes, lost contact with a tower at precisely the moment it received it, which was 2.59 p.m., which was the time of the explosion. Hmm. The SIM card had been contacted by a mobile phone located at sea by triangulation data. Both of the numbers had only been activated in November 2016 and had exchanged just four text messages, including the one that detonated the bomb. The mobile phone of one of the three suspects, George, was already under surveillance, likely because he was already known to police prior to this, and had been used from the same location out at sea to request a credit top-up to the SIM card of the phone that sent the fatal text message. So both George and Alfred owned pleasure boats, one of which, called the Maya, was recorded on CCTV camera, leaving Malta's Grand Harbor at 8 a.m. on the morning of Daphne's assassination and was not seen returning until after 3 p.m. What is a pleasure boat? The police suspicions. (laughs) Sorry. Like a yacht? Just, I guess, boats. I, I think it's just... Boats for, like, I mean, not boats that are, like, used by fishermen, but just Mm. because you want to own a boat, I guess. Okay. Is my guess. Like, I didn't completely look into it. It's just a funny, I just thought it was a funny term, pleasure boat. It it sounds sounds very... Yeah. I like pl- yeah, pleasure. Uh, su- suggestive. Yes. Suggestive. suggestive. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting. Please. So, um, the please, please just go ahead. Duh. I don't care. You, you guys, I want your reactions. I don't want to just be telling a story uninterrupted here. Please interrupt me. Okay. The police suspicions were later confirmed by the three suspects. Two of them had a vantage point to Daphne's house and sent a message to the third member who was aboard the boat at sea. Does that answer your question? Um, so they basically checked the phone records. of Well, they found the SIM card that was in the bomb because it kind of just lost contact during the time of the explosion. And then they traced back, okay, who made phone calls or messages to, th- to this number and used that to track the three suspects. Right. So I think what happened was that in the wreckage of the car, they found what sort of amounted to being this organic bomb and that it was likely remotely triggered, which led to them using phone tower data to see what activity was in that area and might be connected And since one of the phones, um, since George was already 
kind of under surveillance because okay. he already had a record. Right. It they were able to connect it to him. Oh, do you know what kind of record he had, or what he did in the past? That I do not. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. So that's actually pretty. I mean, maybe it's standard detective work at the police, but so they were. Um, they made an assumption that there must have been a SIM card in the bomb, and then looked at the the records. I don't know if it was an assumption. I think that they found evidence. Or I think they found enough maybe remnants of the bomb to mm-hmm. see what kind it was and how it was likely triggered, okay. which continued their uh, lead on how to... So a deduction. I, I'm guessing it was more of a deduction than an assumption, mm-hmm. yes. Okay. Well, it's actually pretty good considering that you told us earlier how they were all corrupt, <laughs> but now they actually... Are doing some police they work. They aren't all corrupt. There's okay. just a lot of problematic um, behavior yeah. in the past. And I'm just going to say, right after this, it gets a little problematic. <laughs> so okay. you're right. So. At this point, it seems pretty... Not not too bad, but mm. that's coming now. <laughs> okay. So this had been in the roughly the two months um, after Daphne was killed. But then, seemingly, the case went cold or the investigation had been held up or stopped entirely since, as of June 19, uh, 2019, two years since the last major revelations to the case, none of the three suspects had been tried and no intermediaries or ringleaders of this assassination had been arrested or identified. <laughs> Wait, so they ju- did they arrest the three people? So they were arrested, but they hadn't been tried. Like, there had been no trial. Okay, they, they're just in jail or something, awaiting trial, which never happened? It hadn't happened as of that point. Okay, okay. Because yeah. they had also, they'd also pleaded not guilty. Right. I'm guessing that means that the... The investigation needed more evidence against them mm-hmm. before they thought they could reliably take it to trial and have them actually be found guilty. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. All I know is that it seemed like for two years, basically, nothing much happened. Right. That's frustrating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mm. It it really is. Yes, that's just imagine the family like they must be so frustrated that in that time nothing happened. Yeah, and I mean they have three people who they've I, I guess in custody or something and awaiting trial. But and you would think I feel like as the family you would think that okay any time now and we're gonna hear about you know the trial happening or they're going to find evidence. And they'll be able to, you know, find out who who killed um, their mother or their, their wife. or. But then it just mm-hmm. doesn't happen. That's just, uh, again, so awful. So frustrating. Yeah. yeah. So we are now on the two-year anniversary of Daphne's death. So we're on 16th of October, 2019. So Peter Omtzigt 
who was a special rapporteur for the Council of Europe, listed a catalog of alleged failings and said he was concerned the authorities may have turned down evidence that could lead to those who commissioned the killing. Quote, individual officers may be doing their best, but the approach of the police force as a whole and of the politicians responsible for it does not match the prime minister's promise to leave no stone unturned. A member of the Dutch parliament, Omtzigt, was appointed to monitor the case by the Council of Europe. Among the alleged failings was failure to agree to a plea deal with Vincent Muscat, one of the three suspects in custody, in exchange for a reduced sentence, and subsequently the protection of those involved in the case. Muscat, who was in prison at this point, was terrified of retaliation and wouldn't eat prison food. So... Wait! Yes. So he refused... He's too scared to eat? Yes, he thinks that being involved in this big case, that since he has information, he might be killed. That's why you shouldn't do shitty mm. things. Now he can't even eat. <laughs> <laughs> right, and like I said, the fail, like the this um, member of the Dutch Parliament, which was appointed to sort of oversee the case, like the investigation and how they were coming along, he said, like, they could have agreed to a plea deal with him. Be mm. He would have very likely taken that plea deal because he w wanted protection. Right, but right. So they hadn't. The solution is right there, but no one's doing it, basically. Yes. Mm. And I want to point out again that this sort of shows that there was a lot of attention on this case and a lot of importance... Um, placed on this case by the international community mm. but not it seems not so much by the Maltese well yeah <laughs> it sounds like if they're like like you said they're not you know providing the plea deal to Vince who seems like he would really he's desperate for a plea, you know a plea deal and safety then there's a reason for that and he doesn't trust the food he eats in prison so, yeah, I mean, it's all allegedly, I guess, but it sounds like the government is behind it. And just the way I see it, like there has been seemingly no progress, but mm. had they made this plea deal, they would have gotten obviously more information from a person allegedly involved in this, which would have yeah. then kind of pushed the case along and gotten it closer to being closed i guess yeah being so so um this whole time is muscat the prime minister yes at this point muscat is still minister okay okay right. and i kind of mentioned it in the quote from the um the person overseeing the case but at the beginning of the investigation pm muscat had said to the media he had uh, been quoted saying that he will leave no stone unturned in this investigation mm. and then right. <laughs> and then nothing yet yet nothing yeah yes. not very surprising but yeah yes so peter omsic the rapporteur's efforts to monitor the case had led to 
verbal attacks from Malta's prime minister, um, Muscat, and led to fears for his own safety, which led to a protection detail. So Omtzigt was a veteran investigator. He had produced reports on corruption and bribery, bribery by the Azerbaijan government and on mass surveillance by the U.S. and other countries. But this was the first time that he had required police protection. Wait, so Muscat, PM Muscat, literally threatened Omsik? I don't think he threatened him, but he verbally attacked him. So probably for the stuff he was saying about mm. the investigation. Yeah, Muscat is not very subtle, is he? It doesn't seem like it, no. No. I mean, I guess from his point of view... You know, it's this foreign um, member at, at the Council of Europe who is accusing that they're not doing their job properly. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, he gets defensive. But yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think in general, people don't like it when you say that they're not doing a good job. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but this, it seems extreme. Mm. All right. So. Months later, we're now at the end of 2019. The alleged middleman in this case, whose name was Melvin Thuma, is arrested. Okay, and oh. I need to say here, I don't know how they found him. So just out of nowhere, they they announced that we arrested the alleged middleman. Yes, and I could not find how they learned about him or if maybe he had gotten nervous and said like, hey, I'm involved. And call the police himself. I couldn't find that, but yeah, I don't. I don't know how they found him. I just I couldn't find that information. But I I could. The only thing I could find was that somehow they arrested this man. Okay, and his name was Melvin Thuma. So let's Melvin, just call him okay. Melvin. Is he also from Malta? Yes, okay. pretty much. Yeah, no. Everyone, all of the big players in this case. Are from Malta, except for Amsik, who's Dutch. Yes, but he like he's more of a yeah supposed to be sort of this neutral overseer just to make sure that mm. the Maltese are taking this seriously and are trying to close this case. Mm. Okay. But the people actively involved in the crime are from Malta. Mm. When police arrive to arrest Melvin, he is holding a box with unknown contents and says that he has information for them. In this box were recordings he had secretly taped with the well-known businessman Jorgen Fennec, who was, for the first mm. time here, mentioned or cu- called into question as the one who sort of who commissioned the murder. Okay, wait. <laughs> there's quite a lot of people now. Yes, so, um, there's a lot. Of Melvin is the middleman, yes. and he says the person he was, I suppose, the middleman for is Jorgen. Jorgen Fennec. Jorgen. Jorgen Fennec. And he's also Maltese. Yes, he is a businessman. Okay. And you just said that he was holding the he was holding evidence when the police came. So it does sound like he was turning himself in, in a, a little way? bit, yeah. That's what makes me think that okay. maybe he called the police on himself. Mm-hmm. Alright. And obviously I think we know from other cases and experience that if you have large amounts of evidence towards something like this, you're very likely to get reduced sentences. Right, right. Right, so he said that Jorgen was the one who 
asked him to or asked Melvin to contact George, Alfred, and Vince to assassinate Daphne. This is the mm-hmm. first time he's mentioned. But Jorgen said that, right? No, Melvin's, Melvin said that it was Jorgen who asked him to contact people to take Daphne out. Okay, so was it clear from the beginning that um, George, Alfred, and Vince were just kind of henchmen who were doing what they were told? It was, I think, very likely because as mm. I've alluded to and maybe not alluded to but outright said is that it was very, very likely or I think... A lot of people assumed or deducted that it was very likely that um, Daphne, since she had so many powerful enemies, that one of them had called for her assassination. Mm. And it wouldn't make sense for these, I suppose, petty criminals in a way to Mm. stage this elaborate assassination. Okay, yeah. So there was nothing um, when they did their investigations to link the three people who actually or allegedly maybe did the bombing, they didn't have any motives, basically. It seems like that, yes. Mm, Okay. So Melvin and Jurgen had been or were acquaintances. They had met years ago um, at horse races. So they had a connection. So I guess it made sense that Jurgen could be connected to Melvin and this case because it wasn't like they didn't know each other, but they had this connection. Okay. A couple of days after Melvin's arrest, Jurgen was taken into custody on his yacht as he was attempting to leave Malta. Shortly after his arrest, Prime Minister Muscat's chief of staff, uh, whose name is Keith Shembri, resigned, and he was also later arrested for his alleged involvement. He was apparently also friends with Jurgen. Okay. And, and like how I tell uh, how I told it right now, it kind of seems like out of the blue. But there is a connection. Okay. So, right. So, Keith... Just so you know. Yes. On a side note. Yes. I'm legit writing out like a map. (laughs) That's so good. That's so good. (laughs) Like, I am so thankful that I have a notebook next to me. A physical piece of paper. I needed that when I was doing research. I was like trying to keep it straight. Like that's why I needed so long to like, get this right because I was just like, okay, this has to make sense somehow. It's yeah. so far, yeah. It's been very helpful. That's, let's let's continue, but just okay. on a side note. <laughs> so after this, there was public outrage, and the public called for the prime minister's resignation because obviously there's a lot of people in his direct vicinity that seemed to be involved in this. Mm. Well, it does feel like the police is going against them, though, if they're now arresting... Uh, what's... So Jorgen and the well, chief of Keith. staff? His name's Keith. Keith. Keith is the energy guy, right? No, Keith is chief of staff. Okay. Chief of and staff. I mean, I guess they're all related to Prime Minister Muscat. In a way. So in a way. they they are all connected to Jorgen, but in this case, Keith was the prime minister's chief of staff. So obviously mm. that calls into question the prime minister for okay. his involvement. So do you know how they came up with Keith? Um, I think I talk about it a bit later, but um, there were talks of leaks of information having kept Jorgen up to date on the investigation, which might have been 
from Keith. Like I said, right. they'd, they'd grown up together. They were friends. I think they went to school together. So basically, well, allegedly, according to Melvin, Jor- Jorgen was the one who told him to get, you know, arrange the assassination. And then uh, Keith would tell Jorgen how the investigation was going, which he wasn't supposed to. That's kind of what I was, what, what connections I made. But okay. I might be a bit wrong in some bits. Mm. Some things weren't very clear. It didn't really say how the police yeah. thought to arrest Keith. Okay. But it said that, so Thuma was arrested, then they took Jürgen into custody, then Keith resigned, and then he was arrested. Right, okay. And it's and they found out that they all have this connection to Jürgen. Mm. So it doesn't seem unlikely for there to be involvement. So Mm -hmm. in the middle of 2020, I think it was around June, the former police chief, I'm sorry, Angela, more names, Kutajar was his last name. um, What? (laughs) Kutajar? Yeah. Um, I actually kind of referenced him in the beginning because remember when I said the family kind of called for a change in investigators a lot? Um, because of possible yeah. like ties to the government, he was who they were talking about. He is the former chief Kutuja. of police that was called okay. into question at the very beginning. Oh, so him, former chief of police, former chief of p- police. Yes, and I wish Angela could <laughs> share share her notes yeah. <laughs> for all of us to see. Yes, but this former police chief Kutajar and. Um, Chris Cardona, who was the Labour Party, or so the leading, uh, the the reigning party's deputy leader, were now also being called into question over their possible involvement. So this included like tip-offs to the hitmen and other things. So the former police chief Kudajar claimed to have contacted Melvin in order to retrieve the recordings Melvin had because he was, in quote worried for the investigation but he denies having tipped off the three hitmen mm. so the people who are now um under suspicion or under sp- suspicion for being involved are the former chief of police and mm-hmm. the deputy uh, leader so i guess the person underneath uh, Muscat. Yes. Okay, so basically everyone. <laughs> yes. Everyone in his little political circle. <laughs> basically, basically everyone but the prime okay. minister himself. Yes. Yeah. Now, interesting part. Uh, about a month later, so this was on the 22nd of July in 2020, Melvin Thuma, so the middleman, um, was uh, in critical condition after he was found in a pool of blood oh, at his home. Um, he was then rushed to the hospital where he underwent surgery overnight. Uh, he was, like I said, in critical condition, but he was very, uh, he was expected to pull through. But? He was found in his home. Oh. He was found in his home with knife injuries to his neck, his torso, and his wrist. Just wow. hours before he was expected in court for a hearing. Huh. Wow. Um, Yes. Some more. But, oh, but the indications showed that the injuries were very likely self-inflicted. What? There were no defensive wounds there, and the blood splatter patterns indicated also that it was self-injury. 
There was also no report of a struggle, and no one heard any commotion. Wow. Wait, was it the ambulance that was called? So, um, what happened was that, um, so, Thuma had been home alone, yeah. and since his uh, arrest, he had been under 24-hour police guard, because, like the others, like, there was a big risk of assassination. Um, so, he... They had an officer stationed outside of the house, um, and he. This officer entered on the twenty second of July, because um, Thuma's lawyer said, like, contacted him and said she couldn't reach her client over the phone, and like, could they please check? So the officer uh, went in and found Melvin the way he did. What's interesting is that. The officers on the police guard had previously been stationed inside of the home, mm. but this was discontinued at Thuma's request because of privacy. Okay. Mm. So do we believe that he did self-inflict those wounds then, or? Yeah, it actually. He would be a very tough person. I mean, to to you know inflict three different wounds. Yeah. I mean, he did survive, yeah. right? So it wasn't fatal. Yeah, I don't... He he did. He did. I don't quite understand yeah. the possible motivation, but um, one important bit. So the homicide investigator, like the lead investigator on the case, interviewed Thuma in front of the paramedics before he was taken to uh, the hospital. And Melvin actually confirmed his injuries were self-inflicted. So he, like, he said that, yeah, I did this to myself. Just for the record, he, like, slit his throat and his wrist and then stabbed himself in the kidney? Torso. So, I don't know if he, like, slit his throat, but it just said knife injuries to neck, torso, and wrist. Well, I mean. Maybe it was, like, superficial I, I guess it can't be super, for it to be fatal because then he wouldn't be yeah. in critical condition. Not but not fatal, but critical. Something obviously, yeah. I, I like I said, I don't really understand the motivation okay. here. So he just said he did it, but he didn't explain why. I couldn't find anything on it. Yeah. It just that yeah, he said he did this to himself, and I mean, if you think about it. It would make sense if somebody else was involved and, like, did this to him as a, like, we don't want you to testify, like, you know too much. But in his case, like, he was the one that was like, I have information for you. Here is, like, incriminating evidence. And then he goes and is like, nah, I don't want to testify. Like, I don't quite I feel like also, just to be fair, there's so many more ways to, like, avoid going to court. Yeah. Other than like stabbing <laughs> yeah. yourself, not to like, I mean, not I to like. He was under police surveillance or you know protection the whole time. He can't really run away. But can he just say, "I don't want to do it anymore"? Is that an option? I don't think that. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. I don't think in that case he can because he himself was involved. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing that uh, his testimony is in exchange for like a lesser sentence. Okay. Okay. And. It, he wouldn't get that lesser sentence if he didn't testify. I'm just saying, another Maybe. option would be, like, since you've been locked in your home for, like, 
such a long period of time, you could have drank yourself to death instead of like, you know, there are just so many options out there that are very like damaging to your livers and like that's not so critical, but like quite critical. Like, you know, you wouldn't, yeah. There's either easier things than causing like harm stabbing to your is I, is I, quite I, difficult. Like just yeah, you gotta you, you gotta get over a lot of ow. Uh, I'm just saying ow, but yeah, <laughs> oh, just ow. like ow, but <laughs> yeah. I think like that was one of the parts when I read about it. It it yeah, kind of I mean, interested or it, it didn't interest me the most, but that really stood out to me because. It just didn't make sense to me. Or it, it, this almost sounds like a Conan yeah. crime. Do you, do you guys remember, like, you know, oh, yeah. it's like there's strings involved and then, like, everything going on. And then it's like yeah. the knife poking into yeah. you without you being like, I don't know. That's kind of a side note. But anyhow, continue. Let's continue. Do you think he was threatened? Maybe. Or he feels guilty because of his connection to the person that he basically outed with these recordings because like I said they knew like Melvin and Jürgen knew each other from years before then like they had this connection and I think Melvin in a way felt grateful to Jürgen because so Melvin he got very involved in betting on horses and he became like this what's it called like a bookie for these horse races and this horse racing club I think was right next to Jürgen's like a family home of Jürgen's family so they met kind of like that and I think that Jürgen helped Melvin a lot and so I think there might have been some gratitude there Mm. so maybe he was like oh I shouldn't have done this I guess yeah if you're just acquaintances then someone might not come to you with a with an assassination plot yeah i think there needs to be more trust trust. there yeah yeah (laughs) right so after this point where melvin was taken into the hospital because of critical condition i don't have any further information for you about him because he just didn't get mentioned anymore but as far as i could tell he is definitely still alive and he's also not in jail it seems Mm -hmm. but i'm definitely i i won't be mentioning him again because it doesn't seem like there had been anything, any sort of big news on him. I think there's. it's just that he is trying to get out of testifying or something like that. Anyway, he's still not charged with anything, it seems. Okay. So we are now on February 23rd of 2021. And Vince Muscat on this day was sentenced to 15 years in prison after pleading guilty to the murder of Daphne. In his testimony, Vince claimed that Alfred had received information from former minister Chris Cardona, the deputy party leader, on Daphne's whereabouts prior to her assassination, and um, received subsequent tip-offs prior to their arrest in December 2017. Obviously, Chris Cardona dismissed these allegations. Right. Wait, this is so, like you said, so convoluted. <laughs> so, yes. So Vince, so in the beginning, he was pleading not guilty, right? Or he claimed, they claimed yes, their innocence. And now the he's beginning, all guilty. of them, yes. Yeah. Yes. And he says, instead of, you know, Melvin being the middleman or whatever, he says it was the deputy 
uh, leader. No, he didn't say, oh, no, Melvin wasn't involved in this. But he said mm. that they also that there was involvement from this other person, basically, that okay. helped them. So the PM's right-hand man pretty much directly gave them tip-offs. Is what he's alleging, yes. Claiming, okay. In July 2022, George confessed to detonating the car bomb that killed Daphne and that he would plead guilty to try and get his and his brother's sentences reduced. On the first day of mm-hmm. their trial in October 2022, both George and Alfred de Giorgio dramatically changed their pleas to guilty on charges including willful homicide, causing a fatal explosion, illegally possessing explosive, and criminal conspiracy. They were sentenced to 40 years in prison. Wow. Now, at the point we're at right now, Jürgen Fennec is still awaiting trial. Okay, but he's in jail or prison? No, not as far as I could tell. If he's awaiting trial, okay... I, I think you um, know how sometimes people can be out on bail before mm-hmm, yeah. the trial. I'm guessing, I mean, he is very rich. I'm guessing he was able to post his own bail. Okay. But he has and do you know posted. how much Vince was um, sentenced to? 15 years. Fif- 15 years. And the brothers got 40 yes. each. That doesn't seem very reduced. <laughs> but Well, it seems like than, they got... Yeah the brunt sort of of the charges Mm-mm. no i just thought because you said they would plead guilty to reduce their sentences but i guess each country has different i mean different rules the things they were charged with are pretty heavy so i can guess that even if the terms were reduced that it would still mm. be a long sentence yeah i mean in this case we know that they were not the masterminds behind the murder of course you know they still committed the murder but Mm -hmm. well is anyone else being investigated still or they still want to charge Jorgen it seems like I mean the case is definitely not closed and so the Mm. three main let's say perpetrators are in Mm. prison now but the people that I mentioned that were put under suspicion were Keith Shembri the former chief of staff and Jürgen Fennec and Kudajar. So, uh, like I said, Wait, yes. Kudajar again, the police chief. The, uh, former, the former chief former of police. Former chief of police, yes. Former chief of police. Yes. And there's also Chris Cardona, the Labour Party second in command. Oh my god, there. you're so good. <laughs> I am on top of my shit. That's amazing. I wish I was yeah. on top of my shit. <laughs> I think we need to post Angela's. No, it's super messy. It's like I think I'm the only person who can understand this. We can pretty <laughs> it up a bit. <laughs> but at this point, like I said, like Fennec is still awaiting trial, and who knows at where the investigation is, even if they're, if it's being stalled, or if they're trying to collect evidence or getting people to confess or it doesn't it it's very unclear it's just it's still open and the alleged sort of commissioner of this crime Jurgen, is still free at least mm-hmm. okay now i want to go into a likely theory with you mm. to sort of 
possibly explain why Jurgen Fennec would have wanted Daphne assassinated. Okay. So the Fennecs uh, in Malta are kind of almost the European equivalent to the Trumps in the U.S., owning mm. hotels and luxury apartments. Years ago, Jurgen branched out on his own into a new joint venture, the Electrogas Malta Power Company. At around the uh. same time that he branched out into this business venture, yes, the energy minister. Haha! You, you, you. Yeah, look, look at you making connections. Ah. Look at ah. you making connections. My brain, it's Boom. working. It's it's on fire. Right at the same time, a young Joseph Muscat was on the rise and led Malta's Labour Party to victory in 2013. So he would later become prime minister. Soon after, Electrogas won an 18-year contract with the state to supply liquefied natural gas used to generate electricity. The power station venture was part of a flagship labor policy to cut household bills. A series of revelations by Daphne have raised questions about whether members of Muscat's government intended to receive bribes connected to the power station contract. The claims remained the subject of ongoing inquiries by magistrates and the police. This and revelations made from the Panama Papers make for likely motives of Daphne's murder. Now, there's also evidence in the Panama Papers to the former chief of, chief of staff, Keith Shembri, and the former energy minister, Conrad Mitzi, with alleged links to a secret company called 17 Black, which is owned by Fennec owned by Jürgen. So the Council of Europe um, overseer for this case, Peter Onsicht, he had voiced concern about the absence of any request to the authorities to produce bank account information. And like I said, there's a friendship between Keith and, um, and Jürgen, and these secret business ties to Jürgen make sense with these info leaks that Keith allegedly passed on to Jürgen. So it seemed that Jürgen was kept very up-to-date on minutia of the investigation. I feel like this case is so complicated. It's like... Yeah, and with I so think many corruption... Or I think government corruption is always very complicated. Exactly, it's like one because everybody is in everybody's pocket. Exactly. Yeah. So just to finish us off, I want to talk about a little bit about the effects that Daphne's death had overall with the international community. So following her death, there was a general outcry for more protection for investigative journalists because obviously they're very at risk because they are publishing a lot of very incriminating evidence against people that are very powerful and have a lot of ties. So to address the growing threat to journalism in Europe, the Council of Europe built a solid body of policies and practices to protect journalists. Most recently, in spring of 2022, a committee of experts on strategic lawsuits against public participation, which is a bit of a mouthful, has started work on a new policy recommendation aiming at providing guidance to the member states on measures to be adopted to prevent and combat strategic lawsuits against public participation, which are called 
S-L-A-P-P's for short, or if you want to sound that out, slaps. I.e. the frivolous, vexatious, or malicious use of the law and legal process to silence the public, um, or to silence public watchdogs reporting on matters of public interest. On October 20th, a major European anti-slap conference was held in Strasbourg. The forum was to examine European and national political and other initiatives against slaps. Sorry, the name is just... (laughs) Against Against slaps. slaps. Against slaps. So it seems like slaps are a specific, a specific lawsuit against um, that can be, I guess, taken against investigative journalists for those things they're publishing. Wait, wait, so are slaps... I'm obviously not an expert on this. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, just but wondering, so like not going into yes. too much detail about what slaps are and how they're used. Do you know if Malta is part of the EU? It is, yeah, okay. it's a member state. And is um, Muscat still the PM right now? No, he is not anymore. He stepped down, I think. Um, so he said when, so there was this outcry, right? When um, his chief of staff, what, he when he resigned and was arrested for him to step down. And he said that he would um, after the next elections where a new... Um, leader for his party could be put in power so this was mid 2020 and he said and the elections were held in the beginning or the the results of the elections elections were at the beginning of january i think january 2021 and he said he would stay until a replacement for him could be found then and then he'd step down so do you know if the current leaders of malta are the same party as him i think so yes Mm, so pretty much they're still in power yes (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i'm surprised that i mean it seems like the eu is trying to do something but it feels very limited as to what they can do. And, yeah, I mean, once a country is in the EU, I don't know how it works if they want to kick them out, because I know if with countries who want to join the EU, they're very strict with these things, right? If if a journalist mm-hmm. who's reporting on corruption has been assassinated, very likely by the politicians who are trying to, petitioning to join the EU, then it's not going to be that easy. But... Yeah, right. considering they're already in the EU, it's uh, it just feels like you're there's no way you can win as a normal person. Yeah, so do you know in, what her family feels about the current situation or if they're still trying to do something? Yeah, like they're really fighting for Daphne's justice. Um, I think I mentioned earlier the Daphne Caruana Galizia Foundation. Um, it was kind of started... Um, I think, like, they kind of focus on, um, like, the public inquiry into the whole investigation and um, kind of keep up to date also with where the investigation is right now. And, uh, they like, the I think at least Matthew is a journalist. I think 
Paul, the youngest might be two. So they're also involved in the field and um, are kind of in a way continuing their mother's work. And uh, it feels like because they were really involved in the investigation, like right from the very start, like always trying to push uh, for answers, always trying to uh, get answers from people, um, get something to get the ball rolling. I don't think they're going to rest until everything comes to light or every like all the perpetrators are behind bars. Mm. That's good. There's at least there's people who are they're still fighting for Daphne and you know finding out what happened and who's behind it all. Yeah. It's it was actually like I wanted to kind of mention this just really shortly but there's this um monument in uh malta's capital and it's kind of seen as a a monument to like i think honesty and like strength like all these like really important good things and after daphne's murder people started like leaving pictures of her leaving flowers and candles and since they started doing that like daily if not multiple times a day like the state had the memorial like cleaned off like taken all the flowers and everything and people just kept coming back and putting new flowers and putting up new pictures because they're like you're not gonna let us forget this like we are still thinking about her we still want answers to this and it's still going on to this day yeah yeah so it's so it's that's interesting to, that the government there's you know, still trying to cover up or just trying these futile efforts to make people forget. Yeah, that's really what it seems like, right? That they're trying to sort of make people, like, if it's not uh, in their line of sight, like, maybe they'll forget it and we can just brush it under the rug. Yeah, and because, you know, if... I don't know, if they played it cool and just let people do their thing put the, put up their memorials, you know. I feel like people will be more inclined to think that, yeah, they're not trying to hide anything anymore or cover anything up, and they're on our side, in a way. But yeah. instead, they do this kind of, you know, they clean up all the pictures, and that makes you feel like they, they're still trying to hide something, and they're still trying to cover it up. So, I don't know. It's kind of dumb, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. So just to sort of um, round it out, um, my sources for uh, my story were um, from The Guardian, then um, the Daphne Caruana Galicia Foundation that I mentioned. Um, information for the Panama Papers were uh, about the Panama Papers were also from The Guardian and uh, panamapapers.zudeutsche.de, uh, so the, the South German newspaper, and the Council of Europe. And um, if you're wanting to sort of look more into this case, like I said, um, Daphne's blog called Running Commentary is still up. You can go and look at her um, articles. Then there is a BBC Radio 4 five-part docudrama called Daphne, A Fire in Malta. Um you can look into the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And um, her youngest son, Paul Caruana Galizia, uh, published one 
maybe two books uh, regarding, like, telling the story of his mother and the entire investigation. Um, I have two titles, so I think it's two books. Like, one is called In the Name of the Mother, Daphne's Sons and a Quest for Justice. And the other one is A Death in Malta, An Assassination and a Family's Quest for Justice. So look into those if you're interested. Okay, well... Thanks for listening, sounds, guys. Yeah, thank you for the story. It's yeah, it's really convoluted thank and complicated, you for sharing. but very important. Yes, I mean, definitely. The person in charge of her or responsible is still not well. We assume is still not um, being held responsible. So hopefully that changes in the future. Yes, I hope so too. I hope that the uh, the case continues to move forward and that anybody involved is rightfully put behind bars so maybe i hopefully we can do maybe an update in the future if anything noteworthy happens i really hope it does i would love to see the close of this case okay so that was my european case for today the case of daphne caruana galicia a japan uh, <laughs> Daphne Caruana Galizia, a Maltese investigative journalist. And we will try and keep you updated if anything noteworthy happens in the case in the future. We hope you enjoyed today's case and we hope to see you next time. Bye. I guess it's just good night. Goodbye. Good night. Goodbye. Good day. Good good afternoon. Yeah, see good. you next time. Bye. Bye. See you next time then. <laughs> good night. Bye.